Hello everyone, this is Jeannie Poole. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Heart Rhythm O2 Journal. This is the September issue podcast summarizing 10 great papers. The first paper is titled Introducing the 2023-HRS-APHRS-LAHRS Guideline on Cardiac Physiologic Pacing for the Avoidance and Mitigation of Heart Failure. This um, paper joins our series of brief editorials that HRO2 publishes summarizing any recently published HRS guideline or consensus document. This editorial was authored by Dr. Julia Indick and summarizes the 2023 guideline on cardiac physiologic pacing. In this summary, Dr. Indick highlights important aspects of the document. First, that it pulls together the large body of CRT research and the increasing body of literature supporting CSP and noting which indications have not changed. For the latter, the previous CRT indications continue to stand with their prior levels of recommendation. However, there's a new class 1 CRT recommendation for female patients with a cure restoration of 120 to 150 milliseconds. This is very important as it has been demonstrated that women respond to CRT and shorter cure restorations compared with men. Next, CSP is broadly recommended as a bailout type strategy whenever CRT cannot be achieved. There are two new recommendations for patients with ejection fraction 36 to 50% in sinus rhythm with left bundle branch block, cure restoration equal to or greater than 150 milliseconds, and near heart association class 2 to 4. In these patients, the choice of using conduction system pacing versus CRT is a class 2B recommendation. CSP is also given a class 2B recommendation as an alternative to standard CRT in patients with ejection fraction equal to or less than 35% with heart failure class 2 to 4. Another important new indication is a class 2A recommendation for CSP for pacing-induced cardiomyopathy and standard CRT remains a class 1 recommendation for this patient population. A change from the prior guideline, which recommended his bundle pacing for patients with substantial right ventricular pacing if the systolic function was not normal. Now, however, the new recommendation is at a 2B level for conduction system pacing, even in the setting of normal left ventricular function, but substantial pacing. The final notable recommendation that is new is that left bundle branch area pacing specifically received a 2B level recommendation as an alternative to standard RV pacing in patients with normal systolic function and less than substantial pacing. This is a class 3, that is not recommended, indication for CRT, and that recommendation stands. There's a nice table in this article that summarizes all of these recommendations, and I encourage you to refer to this for quick access to the recommendations in this document. There are a number of randomized trials that have started, and most likely that conduction system pacing will receive further support in future consensus and guideline documents. We thank Dr. Julia Indek for this great summary of this very important document. The next paper is also an editorial. This one is by author Niraj Varma, who summarizes the highlights from the 2023 HRS, ERA, APHRS, and LAHRS expert consensus statement on practical management of the remote device clinic. In this editorial, Dr. Varma provides a summary of the new or changed recommendations. He emphasizes that prior recommendations do not adequately address the behind-the-scenes effort required to run a successful remote monitoring program such as patient education, scheduling, and troubleshooting. In addition to the time spent in chart review and patient management in response to alerts, the healthcare providers assume the ultimate responsibility for the results of any remote monitoring interrogation, yet without the infrastructure often available to assist providing that communication and recommendation to the patients. Dr. Barman notes that this new consensus document has several key components, 
First, it emphasizes that all members of the remote monitoring team should receive training, continuing education, and certifications specific to remote monitoring and become knowledgeable about unique characteristics of different manufacturers' devices and their associated remote monitoring platforms. So let's just pause here for a moment. I just want to say that this is very important and a necessary high bar to maintain, yet providing adequate training requires time, resources, and financial support that is not always available. Second, Dr. Barma goes on to summarize that the duties sh should be defined for each team member, i.e. task-based, who should operate in an organizational model adapted to each individual device clinic's work workflow. Third, the service should be independent of industry, which should not participate directly in clinical care. Fourth, it is essential that adequate time be dedicated to perform all remote monitoring tasks. This time is involved not just for the remote monitoring staff to review the reports of the summaries, but if outsourced, the time taken to contact the appropriate healthcare provider who then needs to review the patient chart and prior remote interrogations in order to provide an appropriate recommendation. Fifth, Dr. Varma notes that importantly, this consensus document states that three full-time equivalents per 1,000 patients on remote monitoring are required, and this includes clinical and administrative staff. Dr. Barma does summarize other practical aspects of managing a remote clinic, such as managing alerts, and they look to the future where alert-based programs will ease some of the burden of the current approach to remote monitoring. Finally, and very important, it is the need for adequate reimbursement, which is not only focused on reimbursement to the healthcare provider, but to cover the cost of the remote monitoring systems themselves, the hardware, the software, and the industry service, administrative and non-clinical personnel. This is a very important document and takes another step towards defining a safe, efficient, and equitable system of remote monitoring for all CIED patients. We thank Dr. Varma for his comments in this excellent editorial. The next paper and the first original research submission in this issue is by Dr. Usama Wazni and colleagues. The title is An Economic Evaluation of First-Line Cryo-Balloon Ablation versus Antiarrhythmic Drug Therapy for the Treatment of Paroxysmal Atrial Fibrillation from a U.S. Medicare Perspective. This is an important analysis that looks at patient-level data from 703 participants with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation who were enrolled in the cryo-first, STOP-AF, and early AF trials. The primary outcome measure was to look at cost-effectiveness compared with antiarrhythmic drug treatment as first-line therapy for patients with PAF in a Medicare age population. The modeling included a hybrid decision tree with a one-year time horizon, and that informed the first cycle of a Markov model. In the initial hybrid decision tree, three health states were identified, which included normal sinus rhythm state, defined as no recorded AF within three months, a short-term episodic state, defined as at least one AF episode, paroxysmal or persistent, recorded within three months, and then the third state was death. The definitions of these three states were then validated by the clinical authors. The authors also captured repeat ablations in the two alive health states. The final health state of the initial hybrid decision tree then determined the initial health state for the Markov model for the remaining 40-year time horizon. AF progression was also assessed as long-term persistent or permanent AF. Quality-adjusted life years were then looked at as the primary outcome measure. Additionally, costs and benefits were discounted at 3% per year. Unit costs were based on publicly available Medicare reimbursement rates, an analysis of the Medicare fee-for-service claims data, the Medicare Part D drug dashboard, and literature-sourced values. The primary results of this study is that cryo-ablation compared with antiarrhythmic drug therapy was estimated to yield higher 
quality of life years, 10.17, and higher costs, an additional $4,274 per patient over a 40-year time horizon. The incremental cost-effectiveness ratio then is $24,637 per quality life year gained. An additional finding is that patients were estimated to have 1.2 ablations over a lifetime and that there was a 45% relative risk reduction in time spent in AF for the cryoablation group versus the antiarrhythmic drug group. The authors conclude that their findings are supportive of cryoablation as an initial rhythm control strategy rather than an antiarrhythmic drug in Medicare-age patients with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. The next paper is titled, Systolic Blood Pressure Equal to Less Than 110 Millimeters of Mercury is Associated with Severe Coronary Microvascular Ischemia and Higher Risk for Ventricular Arrhythmias and Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy by first author, Diane Liu. The authors performed a retrospective analysis of 690 HCM patients followed in the John Hopkins HCM registry. All patients received comprehensive evaluation, treatment, and follow-up. Patients had exercise, echocardiograms, cardiac MRI, and PET stress tests performed. The latter was at the discretion of the physician managing the patient. Systolic blood pressures were obtained during clinical evaluation. Patients were divided into three groups based upon their resting systolic blood pressure. Group 1, equal to or less than 110 millimeters per mercury. Group 2, 111 to 140 millimeters of mercury. And group 3, greater than 140 millimeters of mercury. The outcome measures were 1. Sustained VT or VF, 2. New onset or worsening heart failure, 3. All-cause mortality, and 4. A composite of numbers 1 through 3. The authors found that resting heart rates were similar across the three groups, but that group 1 patients were younger, more likely to be women, and to have non-obstructive hemodynamics with restrictive diastolic filling. They were also more likely to have had VT, VF, and an ICD. Group 1 had the lowest rest and stress myocardial blood flow and highest summed difference score. Additional findings were that both rest and hyperemic myocardial blood flow were positively correlated with age, resting pulse pressure, mitral ENA waves, and E to EO ratio. Resting MBF was positively correlated with resting heart rate, and resting MBF also was positively correlated, correlated with provoked peak LVO2 gradient. Hyperemic MB, MBF was negatively correlated with LV mass and positively correlated with rest systolic blood pressure, and MAP, and inducible ischemia. In terms of the primary outcome measures, after a follow-up of 3.1 plus or minus 2.7 years, 154 patients underwent myectomy and 36 underwent alcohol septal ablation for treatment of LV obstruction. There were 27 VTBF events, 39 heart failure events, and 15 all-cause deaths. Not surprisingly, patients in group 1 had the highest incidence of VTBF, although the incidences of heart failure, all-cause death, and the composite outcome were similar across the three groups. Systolic blood pressure less than 110 millimeters of mercury was associated with a higher risk of VTVF than systolic blood pressures that were higher than 110. After adjusting for age, sex, HCM type, and history of ICD implantation, rest, systolic blood pressure less than 110 millimeters of mercury continued to be independently associated with VTVF with a hazard ratio of 2.6. This was quite an extensive analysis focused on the systolic blood pressure as the primary variable. The authors conclude that the lower versus higher blood pressure was associated with greater severity of coronary microvascular dysfunction and coronary microvascular ischemia with a higher incidence of ventricular arrhythmias. 
While the authors postulate that lower blood pressure results in lower coronary perfusion and therefore higher risk, they note that not all of the patients in the cohort had the advanced PET imaging and that resting blood pressure may not be the whole picture and future studies will be needed to also replicate these data and include a look at exercise blood pressures. The next paper has an interesting title, Alcohol and Caffeine Synergistically Induce Spontaneous Ventricular Tachyarrhythmias ameliorated with dantrolene treatment by Dr. Yuha Zhang and colleagues. The background for this study is that alcohol and caffeine are the two most frequently consumed substances in the general population and that many people are consuming both. The authors state that both substances may increase cardiac arrhythmia risk, but that it is unknown if alcohol, specifically binge drinking, and caffeine co-consumption can synergistically be more pro-arrhythmic. The authors also studied whether dantrolene could ameliorate the development of ventricular arrhythmias. The study was conducted in a rat model. The rats were randomized to four groups, one binge alcohol only, two caffeine only, three binge alcohol plus caffeine, and four binge alcohol plus caffeine plus dantrolene. The alcohol delivery was given intraperitoneally every other day times three. To assess the effects of dantrolene, the authors looked at whether alcohol induces calcium sparks and whether dantrolene treatment attenuates alcohol-induced calcium leak in the ventricular myocytes. The results showed that no arrhythmia was induced with caffeine alone or alcohol alone. However, alcohol plus caffeine induced spontaneous ventricular tachyarrhythmias in all of the rats. Dantrolene prevented ventricular tachyarrhythmia induction in all seven rats in that group. And in isolated ventricular myocytes, alcohol significantly increased calcium sparks and dantrolene treatment reduced alcohol-induced calcium sparks. It is noted that atrial arrhythmias were not observed, which we know in humans that both alcohol and caffeine are associated with atrial tachyarrhythmias. There are limits to exp extrapolating this data to the human heart given the differences in cardiac electrophysiology. It is interesting that dantrolene which has been shown to stabilize the RYR2 and reduce calcium leakage, was able to prevent VTVF in this rat model. The next paper is titled Left Ventricular Remodeling in Premature Ventricular Contraction-Induced Cardiomyopathy, Effective Coupling Intervals and Atrial Ventricular Dissociation by Dr. Pura Shireshi. In this study, the authors evaluate LV dyssynchrony and post-extrasystolic potentiation associated with premature ventricular contractions with the question of whether these two factors contribute to the PVC-induced cardiomyopathic mechanism. The author notes that long-coupled PVCs have a greater left ventricular dyssynchrony than short-coupled PVCs. On the other hand, short-coupled PVCs have a stronger post-extrasystolic potentiation than long-coupled PVCs. With that background, the purpose of this study was to compare short-coupled and long-coupled PVCs focused on the potential role of left ventricular um, dyssynchrony, post-extrasystolic potentiation, and AV dissociation in the development of PVC-induced cardiomyopathy. This is an animal model using 36 canines who had pacemakers placed to induce bigeminal right ventricular apical epicardial PVCs for up to a 50% PVC burden. The animals were paced for 12 weeks and then were monitored with continuous telemetry. For these animals, short-coupled PVC interval was 200 to 220 milliseconds, and long-couple was defined as 330 milliseconds. The authors included a sham control group also. The animals also had hemodynamic measures and echocardiograms performed over the 12 weeks. So, what did the authors observe? First, the PVC burden was higher in the short-coupled group, 50% versus 47.5% in the long-coupled group. At 12 weeks, the LVEF had significantly decreased in both groups, 47.1 and 45.5% respectively for short and long 
um, PVC coupled groups compared with the sham animals whose LBEF was 61%. Third, AV dissociation was similar between the two groups and AV dissociation did not seem to correlate to the change in the 12-week LBEF measurement. And four, both groups had a similar and substantial decline in maximum and minimum DPDT at 12 weeks compared to the baseline measurement. The authors interpret these results to show that both left ventricular dyssynchrony and post-extracystolic potentiation may play a role in the mechanism of PVC-induced cardiomyopathy and may contribute independently, whereas AV dissociation may not contribute significantly. So this is interesting data for which further studies in humans will be needed to confirm these results. The next study is also an animal model study. The title of this paper is Safety of an Esophageal Deviator for Atrial Fibrillation Catheter Ablation by Dr. Renner, Peria, and colleagues. Esophageal thermal injury is always a concern with thermal AF ablation. Temperature monitoring is routinely performed, and a number of other approaches with esophageal deviation has been studied. This preclinical study evaluates the safety of a nitinol-based mechanical esophageal displacement device, MEDD, and its performance. The study was conducted on 20 pigs, 10 who had radiofrequency AF ablation using the mechanical esophageal displacement device, MEDD, and 10 further animals that had no ablation but had the MEDD placed. Esophageal injuries were classified from 0 to 4, which is absent to major, and the esophageal tissue underwent anatomical pathological analysis. For the purposes of this safety analysis, grade 1 and grade 2 were considered acceptable. The extent of the displacement was measured with fluoroscopy. Five of the 20 pigs, or 25%, developed traumatic lesions, four with grade 1 and one with grade 2. This one was a 2 millimeter superficial ulcer. No serious lesions were observed, and there were no differences between the animals that had RF ablation and those that did not, that is 30% versus 20%. The measurement of the rightward displacement showed that the right edge of the esophagus moved 23.9 millimeters and the left moved by 16.3 millimeters from baseline. When the esophagus was moved to the left, the right edge moved by 13.55 millimeters and the left edge by 16.5 millimeters. One pig had a pharyngeal diverticulum related to accidental extubation of the device from the esophagus. The authors conclude that the degree of deviation of the esophagus was acceptable and considered successful. They did not note any serious esophageal lesions, so both groups had minor lesions, possibly due to the mechanical device itself. The authors note that further clinical trials are needed, but that using mechanical deviation devices may improve safety during thermal ablation. The next paper is a review topic. It's a very interesting paper with the title, Speech-Induced Atrial Tachycardia, a Narrative Review of Putative Mechanisms. This is by Dr. Hurtado and colleagues. In this paper, the authors explore the phenomenon of speech-induced atrial tachyarrhythmias. There have been case reports describing this relationship and discussions in case reports suggesting the potential role of the autonomic nervous system. The authors note, however, that there is no unified description, and in this paper, they seek to provide a review of the literature and proposed mechanisms. Their key findings are as follows. One, speech-induced atrial tachycardias are rare, quality-of-life limiting arrhythmias that predominantly affect previously healthy individuals without structural heart disease. 
to the mechanism of speech-induced atrial tachycardia likely involves the autonomic nervous system, thus implicating aberrant stimulation through extrinsic and intrinsic cardiac autonomic structures. And three, evidence is limited with regard to treatment strategies and range from beta blockade to catheter ablation, with the former being effective for transient episodes of speech-induced tachycardia and the latter showing a marked predilection for ablation targets in areas associated with intrinsic cardiac structures. Next up is another review topic paper. This title is Genetic Mechanisms Underlying Arrhythmogenic Mitral Valve Prolapse, Current and Future Perspectives by Dr. Sidney Levy and colleagues. This is another very important topic and one that we are faced with increasingly, which is understanding arrhythmogenic mitral valve prolapse and in particular arrhythmic management and prevention. In this review, the authors focus on familial MVP, which affects 2-3% of the general population, for which a heritable component of MVP may be 20-35% of all MVP. The key points that the authors note are 1. There is increasing recognition of arrhythmias in mitral valve prolapse having a familial component. Second, overlap between inheritance, ventricular arrhythmia, sudden cardiac death, and MVP has been reported. Third, understanding familial MVP and its connection to rhythm disorders can help determine patient risk and ultimately aid in the development of effective management strategies. And finally, prospective evaluation of arrhythmogenic MVP not only should include multimodality imaging, electrophysiologic studies, and ablation, but also should incorporate family screening and genetic evaluation. The next and final paper is a brief report. The title is Evaluation of a Novel PVC and PAC Detection Algorithm in an Implantable Cardiac Monitor for Longitudinal Risk Monitoring with first author Joseph Marmerstein and colleagues. This is a brief report that describes the novel PVC-PAC algorithm incorporated into the Biotronic Bile Monitor Implantable Cardiac Monitor, which they note has a five-year battery. The authors describe and summarize the following. First, in a large data set containing ECG data recorded in 435 patients, the novel PVC-PAC discrimination algorithm detected PVCs with high sensitivity, 73.1%, and specificity, 99.95%. The uh, discrimination algorithm detected PACs also with high specificity, 99.9%, with a tendency to overestimate PAC frequency. Patient PVC burden determined by the PVC-PAC discrimination algorithm was highly correlated with the true PVC burden, demonstrating that this algorithm provides an accurate measure of underlying PVC burden. The authors conclude that long-term PVC-PAC burden monitoring provides improved diagnostic accuracy over Holter monitoring, which can be prone to short-term fluctuations. Well, this concludes the summary of the papers published in the September 2023 HRO2 issue. I hope you enjoyed hearing about these interesting papers. We always want to take the time to thank our editors and reviewers for their efforts in making HRO2 successful and appreciate all of you who submit to our journal. I will be back next month with the next podcast in October.